So, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 22, these five verses we will start out with this morning. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Father, as we begin today, Lord, would you help me to present, Lord, what is in your text correctly, Lord, so that your people and those who are not your people, Lord, may hear and understand the greatness, the glory of God and creation in your law, and most importantly in the gospel, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. So these five verses are all important for our time this morning, but our main focus to begin is on verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Now the reason this is the focus at first is that these verses reveal something extremely important, something we have understood before but need to be reminded of. Several of us who are believers and are familiar with these verses may say, that's about God revealing himself in creation, got that. But these verses, particularly for an unbeliever, end with the rather startling statement, they are without excuse. And when a sinful human gets to that statement and puts any credence in the scriptures, it can be rather shocking because one of our most common activities and greatest abilities as sinful humans is to make excuses and ultimately excuse ourselves from guilt and liability for all the various sins we commit. Now the greatest problem unbelievers have, and according to these verses it begins with rejecting God's clear announcement of himself and his attributes in creation, their greatest problem is they are guilty sinners, liable and responsible before God for their rebellion and under just condemnation. So although they may not perceive it yet, they are in desperate need of salvation, of being rendered not guilty and thereby not being under just condemnation. And so, in this passage, God says we, that's all of us, can't be making excuses or excusing ourselves from this wrath we are under, yet we live by excuses from the time we are small children. 
she started it to being mature adults. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or, or even like this tax collector. In fact, if one challenges an unbeliever beyond just pointing to God's creation, challenging with the word of God, the requirements of his law upon them as one of God's creation, the response is usually, I'm not really a bad person, or I've done a lot of good, and thereby excuse themselves from guilt, liability, and responsibility, and continue to do what these verses insist they are doing, which is to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now what we are doing today is reminding ourselves of something which Sergio often says, that there are two books given to us. On the one hand, there is the Bible, the scriptures, the word of God, and in there, the law is given, as Paul says later in Romans, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God, and that by the law, no human being will be justified. And the other book, if you will, is the book of his creation, a creation that requires no book to carry, nor text in an iPhone to refer to, but is rather constantly in view of us, and in fact includes our very selves in the midst of it. And since God obviously, I can say this without getting in trouble, I'm sure you'll take it the right way, since God obviously the way we perceive it went to a lot of trouble to create everything which exists in our universe, today we're going to take some time to remind ourselves of how important it is to believers, non-believers, to God and to his glory. Now these verses start out by telling us the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And God's wrath can take various forms. The wrath could be an earthquake or other physical phenomenon or, like in the Old Testament, God's wrath against the Israelites in judging them by wars and famines. But the wrath we are focusing on here, it's a bit different. Because in the few verses after those we're highlighting this morning, Paul three times says God gave them up to do all kinds of sinful things which God hates and ultimately cause misery or ruin in the lives of us sinful humans. As the verses we read inform us, we humans have minds which have become futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts have been darkened. So all that sounds a bit overwhelming. We must have done something rather offensive. We must have seriously missed the mark and sinned grievously. And Paul here tells us how that ultimately shows itself. And that is in verse 21 where he writes, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him because we suppressed the truth about God that he is to be honored and to be given thanks, we should be doing that to the gracious, loving, giving, benevolent, kind God, our glorious God who gave us life and sustains us. Like Paul says elsewhere about God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, who calls us to a holy life for our good and his glory, rather than to a sinful life, the sinful life which Paul describes in detail right here 
in the remaining verses in this first chapter of Romans. And as Paul starts out, all this trouble begins to pinwheel to have its focus around verses 19 and 20. Things get worse as Paul goes along, but we humans are immediately in trouble here in these verses where Paul says these things are plainly shown to us by God. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And then he finishes saying, because of all that, we are without excuse. Without excuse if we don't know what God has made plain to us. What Paul calls his eternal power and divine nature, he insists, are clearly perceived in creation. Of course, if I ask a non-believer, they would likely tell you it's not at all clear to them. And if I begin to speak to an unbeliever and say things like, Did you know God says his wrath is revealed against our ungodliness? That there is in us suppression of the truth? That there is plainly given to us the knowledge of God? That you should know he is eternally powerful and divine? That God says it is clear to you and me? They might say, well, what's the punchline? I don't get it. What is the basis for all that? How in the world can you or I know all that stuff? Paul says simply, all that is known since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. That's it. You are without excuse to not believe these things about God. And Paul doesn't go on to argue about it. He states it and then moves on in the next verse 21 and begins by saying, although they knew God. No argument. It's a done deal. They knew God. By the things that have been made by creation, they knew God. And that knowing is more than just acknowledging, okay, well, yes, there is a God, because Paul states the problem. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Now, can we notice in here an obvious oxymoron? Meaning there are some words which appear to be contradictory, but which contain a concealed point. God says these things are plain to us, that they are clearly perceived. And what are these things? They are the invisible attributes of God. These invisible attributes are clearly perceived by you and me. So Paul must be saying we humans who have been made in God's image, who have the ability to reason and perceive, we should perceive God in creation and then use that perception to understand things so we can see that the creation requiring us to know there is a God is only the basic starting point. Not only are we required through creation to know, yes, there is a God who made these things, but to understand from them what Paul says is his eternal power and divine nature. He's eternal, he's powerful, and he's divine. That's what you and I should know from creation, causing us to honor God and give thanks to him. Now when Paul says men are without excuse for not knowing God through the display of his creation, we have to emphasize that God's natural revelation of himself in creation does not 
nor can it ever lead to salvation, but it does demonstrate God's condemnation of all people is just. Yet in these verses, in this first chapter, we must realize he is revealing here some profound demands upon us before we ever might hear the gospel, read a Bible, or go to church. All we have to do is be born and live our normal lives. Here's a quote from F.B. Meyer, a contemporary of Moody's, giving the big picture. Heathenism is not the primeval religion from which man might gradually have risen to the knowledge of the true God, no, but it is rather, on the contrary, the result of falling away from the known original revelation of the true God in his works, that is, in his creation. Eternal, powerful, divine. His eternality. Well, starting with, there is in fact God who created all this. That is foundational. It's obvious to us things have been around a long time. The sky, the ocean, even an old tree tells us we are short-term and creation is long-term. And the power of God? That is also clear but that could start to cause a bit more discomfort in a human heart. It's one thing to be an eternal old grandpa, another thing to be very powerful, far more powerful than I am. So for us, who want to be independent and in charge of the world and our lives, acknowledging God and his power can cause suppressing the truth to grow a bit stronger. But we can get a taste of God's power over us. We can defer to God's words to Job when he describes in detail the extent of his power over mankind. Just a small taste of his speaking to Job and to us. Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. And Paul also says we know his divine nature. That is a loaded term used nowhere else in the Bible, capturing a multitude of the attributes of God. It is his deity manifested. It's difficult to assemble enough adjectives. It doesn't mean absolutely everything which can be known about God, Certainly not about salvation, since here Paul is referring to creation. It is his divine perfections, his divine attributes. Like Peter says when writing to believers, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you. His greatness, his glory, majesty, his dominion, his justice, his righteousness, his supremacy, his right to our honor and reverence and worship. And of course... As Paul will subsequently describe, on the other hand, 
the folly and wickedness of idolatry. And what of this creation? Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian, was very keen on observing creation in relation to his worship, even for the most basic, inanimate things. He would ask himself questions like, What is that tree telling me about God? What is God's purpose in making this tree? How has God expressed his character here? Why are trees so lavish? Why are they so diverse? Why do trees live in harmony and dependence on other things? And isn't God constantly pointing us to it, especially in places like the Psalms? The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. That's 19. 50. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. 97. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. We could go on and on. As I've mentioned before, man is constantly discovering incredible things in creation. I'm repeating myself a bit, but we must be reminded of these remarkable discoveries which usually go unnoticed by us. Very recently this one. Astronomers have discovered a previously unknown variety of galaxies which are causing them to rethink the entire scale of the universe. They have ten times the mass of our Milky Way saying it could fundamentally change our understanding of the formation and evolution of the galaxies. It's as if we have just discovered a new land animal stomping around that is the size of an elephant, but it had shockingly gone unnoticed. There are so many things in creation which testify to God and his perfections, things like irreducible complexity. In other words, if I just change one thing a little bit, nothing works. If I just remove the gas pedal from my new car, the whole thing doesn't work. If I remove just one part of living organisms, it doesn't function as designed. Here are a few things God arranges perfectly, which honest scientists today agree could not deviate in the smallest way in order for life to be sustained on the earth the sun's mass, sun's distance, its color, solar winds, surface gravity, inclination of the Earth's orbit, Earth's tilt, its rotation, its magnetic field, the thickness of its crust, the amount of oxygen, water vapor, ozone, even volcanic eruptions, the moon's exact gravitational pull, the pull of massive Jupiter on the Earth, atmospheric pressure, sunspots, heat movement in the atmosphere, the timing and location of rainfall, that's just to name a few. John Calvin, he wrote extensively about the wonders of creation, not only in a theological sense, but at the same time with a sense of wonderment at it all. We sinful humans who live in a concrete jungle are no less guilty of suppressing the truths about God we see in his creation but we are definitely deprived of enjoying much of it. Instead, we trade comfort and the ease of 
freeways and cars and parking lots, street lights, televisions, iPhones, etc., etc. Calvin, he wrote how God was pleased to manifest his perfections in the whole structure of the universe and daily place himself in our view that we cannot open our eyes without being compelled to behold him. His essence indeed is incomprehensible, utterly transcending all human thought, but on each of his works, his glory is engraven in characters so bright, so distinct, and so illustrious that none, however dull and illiterate, can plead ignorance as their excuse. So we are called to enjoy God's creation, and we who are believers enjoy it all the more. And what is the reason believers should and can and usually do enjoy creation, knowing it's our God's handiwork? Hebrews tells us, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So by faith we believe, and one thing we believe when we become believers is exactly what Hebrews says. When the veil is taken away, when we turn to the Lord, we come to understand all creation is created by God. I myself can recall when I first became a believer how the creation literally took on a different view and hue. Even pondering a green ficus tree swaying in the wind in an asphalt grocery store parking lot, it looked radiant. We who believe see it all differently, at least more fully the way it was meant to be seen, glorious from, through, and to God, because we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. This is what Jonathan Edwards says. Because of his sense of security, especially eternal security, the Christian can experience more joy in even just the basics of life than the wicked can in their luxuries. Luxuries and goods and comfort and stuff to fill the bottomless, unbelieving soul. Have you noticed that if you're a Christian? Rather than being overburdened by envy toward those who are eating a fine steak and enjoying fine wines at Houston's, as we drive by, we sit down to our double-double and say, Glory to God! What perfections in these fries! Thank you, Jesus! There's a woman in this church who is so encouraging to me whenever she returns from one of her trips She's always talking about experiencing deeply the wonder of God's creation combined with the wonders of his word in concert. So how can it be God holds me accountable for knowing him from creation? Paul just states it's true. And not just once, but several times. In our verses, it's twice. What can be known about God? And then, although they knew God. But as he goes on here in this first chapter of Romans, after he says he gave us humans over to detestable practices, he affirms this again even more firmly when he's about to start another list of 
the many detestable practices which he did in fact give us humans over to, he says, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. We should acknowledge God if we knew him. And Paul says we do in fact certainly know him. So then Paul goes on from there listing other unrighteous things we do. Then he ends up with something very serious about this whole idea, actually a fact, of knowing God through his creation in verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. That is serious. All those detestable idolatries, immoralities humans practice, listed by Paul in here, which I did not read. I count 23 of them, but there could be more. We know, it says about them, they know God's righteous decree. That's you and I. They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Now we might think I should know all those things after Sunday school or Bible reading, but no. It's know God's righteous decree in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. How can that be? There is a clue, actually a very good clue a few verses later. We are created in God's image. We have five senses and a brain and a soul. We are not unreasoning animals. Although if you believe in evolution, you might as well be one. In these next few verses, when Paul is speaking primarily to the Jews, he writes, For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So, there is in us a conscience. Somehow these basic principles of right and wrong are within us. Highly corrupted from birth, but in there. For some, after a while, they are like Paul says to Timothy, purveyors of doctrines of demons who are seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. So we can think of it this way. God is invisible. Paul says so here, speaking of what we should know. His invisible attributes. God exists, he is invisible, and the attributes Paul lists are invisible. And then, you and I have a soul and a conscience. We can't see it, but we know it's there. And bridging these two invisible things is the visible, plainly seen creation. We have a human body and eyes and ears, all five senses along with our brain, we are responsible for using our senses and our brain to clearly perceive the invisible God and his attributes from what has been made. And yet, that is not what unbelievers do. Because Paul tells us men by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's it. The truth is plainly there. In fact, if you think about it, this creation is supposed to be effect on us to honor and thank God is, can I say, hounding us constantly, not sometimes or most of the time, but all day long. So surely we see the earth and universe are huge, and so God is clearly powerful. 
Thus we are small and dependent. And if we are unbelievers, we don't like that. We deny that. Our conscience is pricked. And so we suppress it. Then we have two choices. Either we deny his very existence, welcome to evolution, or we say perhaps yes, but then we distort him to be like we want him to be. We make him in our own image. And given the massiveness of creation, its obvious complexity, how nicely it functions, the amount of suppressing the truth is like a wall which is very strong, very high, seemingly impermeable, we do become, as our verse 21 says, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Futile in thinking, darkened hearts. That may sound somewhat familiar because Joe went over this in Ephesians. There, Paul tells believers, they must no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding. Paul says they are willfully ignorant due to a hard heart. Do whatever seems good because of a vacuousness in your heart and mind toward God. Do life without God in vanity. Don't worry about eternity. That's the mental darkness which came through Adam. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that unbelievers are blinded and don't see the glory of God in Christ. As a matter of fact, according to John, unbelievers love this darkness. Actually, they are a lot like Dracula. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That's a nice description of our verse 18, of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And in this futility and darkness of heart, we humans become less able to function as rational beings. Our failure to recognize our creatureliness causes us to be less able to function as human beings the way we should be. That's all in our verses this morning. But then, Paul goes on to say, God then gave us humans up to do all those evil things he begins to list. He gave us up, abandons us to our natural sinfulness. And if we look around our culture today, it should be fairly obvious, God has given us modern Westerners up to these things. Clearly, the first thing on Paul's list, homosexuality, the West has obviously been given up to that in a big way. And it's fair to say the greater the turning from God, the greater the giving up. And can we point to the widespread acceptance of evolution in the West as a root? The complete denial of God's existence? Here in our verses, Paul just states the existence of God. That's foundational. Not questioning that. It's this dishonoring and thanklessness toward the one truly existing God, which is the basis for his proclamation of futile, darkened human minds. Satan is very satisfied at the progress of convincing Westerners of the fact of evolution. No need to honor or thank a God who doesn't even exist. And can we note the world Paul appealed to 
To them, apparently, they were not into the demonic influence of evolution. Paul adjusts his teaching to the audience, and we see him appealing to the very, can we say, unchurched, the irreligious. In Athens, he speaks to the pagan philosophers and sees all their idol gods, since these people at least believed in some type of god. They were not educated enough to believe in evolution and big bangs. So he tells the assembly who their unknown God is, appealing to the basic issues of creation to attempt to guide these pagans to Jesus. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. So in our modern Western world, we have an extra layer of evolutionary lies to overcome, which is deeply entrenched. Paul understands these Greek people recognize something greater than man and material is at work in the created world and ultimately, even today in our culture, each of us is made in the image of God and knows deep in our heart of truth-suppressing unrighteousness that there is a God. But today, with evolution, people must work overtime to keep ignoring what God makes clear in his creation as science more clearly reveals the created order. People must say things which are almost comical within themselves. So even a man like Richard Dawkins, a strong evolutionist, can say, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. That's suppressing the truth. Even worse is Francis Crick, who co-discovered DNA in the 1950s and said, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. There's a good one. So if we put all of this together, the way science has gone off the rails in the face of the overwhelming constant new discoveries which point to the glory of God and the giving over of the culture to mountainous ungodliness, Paul tells us in our verses all that has its root in our suppressing the truth that God has clearly revealed himself to mankind in all his glorious creation. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. No excuses. Now, we have been talking about two books. That of creation and that of the word of God. And we know creation to us, the natural revelation, cannot lead to salvation but rather to the demonstration God's condemnation is just. And as we've said, the creation is testifying to God, but not the saving gospel. That's only in the other book. Like Paul begins in Romans, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes. But should we dispense with the one and only focus on the other? Should we say, oh yes, the other book, that one about creation too, and then move right along? 
It might be the book of creation is actually very key to us sinful humans. It may take us along towards salvation more than we think. We cannot properly understand fully these things without God enabling us. But they are there in creation, in nature, in the book which God so perfectly provided, calling out to us each day. So, inside of us, it might start out with God exists. And looking around and seeing it function without my help or anyone or anything else, telling us God is self-sufficient, that God is outside of his creation, and it's not helping him or making him better. And then perhaps it is apparent I am very tiny in all this, independent, like where does this air come from I'm breathing? And not only my physical body, but what's the origin of my mind and my conscience and reason? And I notice all of his works are orderly and constant, even in its massive complexity. Does this reflect God? And then it becomes obvious he is very intelligent, very smart, and knows everything, including me. So as I live and breathe and understand all that, I guess I should say thank you to God for all of this. But no. I'm a human. I don't want to be subject to his power. I don't want to be dependent on his mercy for giving me air to breathe and water to drink and food to eat. So in this conflict, my innate sinful will wins out. And I suppress these truths in unrighteousness. But somewhere in my mind... In my defective moral dimension, perhaps I will feel some guilt I am not thanking him and hope somehow this all-powerful God will forgive me because Paul does insist here in a verses that our reasoning minds we were given at birth clearly perceive, perceive his eternal power and divine nature, these things which are the glory of God. So the creation surrounding us all day, in spite of the asphalt parking lot and the plastic grass, is showing us God's glory. Even in the classroom or the office, it's never out of sight. Would you note just one thing too? Will you notice that in this room right now, there is the flooring, the walls, the ceiling, the lights, the chairs, all functioning so we can have church? But why do we bring in these plants here behind me? What purpose do they have? Why don't we bring in a big portrait of our pastor? <laughs> or a Ferrari? Because these replicas of the plants are reminding us of God's glory, even though they're not actually real. It's our natural desire to be drawn to God's glorious creation. But let's be clear again, the revelation of God in creation cannot bring about saving faith. Paul says here in Romans, there are those without any law who by nature do things the law requires since they have a conscience, yet they are not innocent but still guilty. Since Paul says, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And those who have the written law itself, they know even more exactly what God requires in that law. 
They do some law keeping, but fail. So Paul says even then, all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. A greater knowledge than the knowledge creation gives, but guilt remains and there is no salvation. But then, apart from the law keeping, Paul says there is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the greater knowledge, the saving knowledge. So natural revelation about God and creation does not lead to salvation, but to the demonstration God's condemnation is just. And the greater knowledge of the law, the same. So you and I, we are very fortunate, very blessed, because we have all heard the gospel here in this church. We did not just receive the benefit of God's creation screaming at us all day long every day that we must honor and thank God. We did not just get taught by the scriptures we must love and obey God, but instead we are lawbreakers and guilty sinners under God's wrath. We did not get taught we can improve our law keeping so it's really good and be welcomed into heaven sweeping our failures under the rug. Rather, we have been given the far more glorious revelation in Christ and his death on the cross for our sins, the true saving gospel of Jesus Christ, his righteousness imputed to us by faith alone, belief in his substitutionary sacrifice of himself on that cross. Now Hebrews tells us this, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. And then it can never perfect those who draw near, never take away sins. The law was a shadow of good things to come, and the good thing is a person. It is Jesus Christ. And so too, we can see the creation itself is a shadow. All is a shadow. The creation, the law, all pointing to the gospel to Jesus Christ. And we should do like Peter says, do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. My favorite sermon by Dr. J. Vernon McGee for 25 years, after he gives a straightforward gospel presentation of salvation, by faith alone in Christ and his sacrificial death on that cross for our sins, he ends his gospel presentation and walks away from the pulpit after simply saying, you'll never be able to go into the presence of God and tell him you never heard it. You heard it. Now may I say, it takes some serious suppressing of the truth in unrighteousness, as Paul calls it, when we fail to know, thank, and honor God through his creation. We can't possibly doubt that in every way it is screaming the glory of God, yet the suppression around us grows greater and greater 
even as the modern technological Western world reveals his glory more and more. I mention it because the glory of creation is great, but how much greater is the glory of Christ revealed in Scripture? How much greater suppressing of the truth is required beyond saying poo-poo to God through his creation daily in our face? It's a warning to us how hard-hearted we must be to reject God. But can we also have a greater mercy on those who have not yet had God reach down and open their eyes to see the glory of Christ and his salvation in the gospel? To realize the battle we are in to make the gospel known in all its glory? But perhaps we really should think and act like the creation is a key part of pointing others to God. At least it's a pebble in their shoe. When Paul is in Lystra, heals a man, these pagans think he is a god. So he appeals to the basics of creation. We also are men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So again, Paul says here in Romans, they know God's righteous decree. And that is from the things made. They know this. So when we do speak to unbelievers who have had God's creation screaming at them their entire lives, we are not starting from absolute scratch. Maybe they've never been to church. They've never read the Bible. They don't know any Christians, but they are not an empty canvas, a blank slate. Their knowing of God and His righteous decrees may be buried inside them, distorted, hidden, tranquilized with beer and wine, with Xbox and Netflix, with the call of the Internet. But we know it's there because Paul insists for 15 verses here in Romans that it is. So if one says, there is no proof of God, they're not really being truthful to what's in them. They may start out speaking of the problem of evil or the tribesmen who've never heard the gospel or their departed sweet Aunt Mary who was a good person not deserving hell or intolerant Christians. But can we point out to them everyone has hardships. All are sinners. Jesus suffered for you to be saved. You know God deep in your heart. He's been jumping up and down waving at you all your life in His creation over here and over here and over there and everywhere. That's bringing the two books together. Something like Proverbs points at about the two together. My son, eat honey, for it is good. Yes, the honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is thus like that for your soul. If you find it, then there will be a future And your hope will not be cut off. 
God's blessings of creation are Him revealing Himself to you, but so too Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Father, thank you that you have so gloriously revealed yourself to us in your creation, in the book of the universe that you gave to us to reveal your glory, and the book which so perfectly proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, the saving, glorious gospel. And the creation is but a shadow pointing to Christ, to our King. And right now for baptized believers, we are going to once again remember our great Savior who died on that bloody cross as we take communion in remembrance of you.